Buried, Not Forgotten is a true crime podcast that is for mature audiences. We will discuss topics that some people might find upsetting, including mental illness, violence, drug use, and murder. Interview subjects' opinions are their own and should not be taken as fact. There's a geology professor from West Virginia University who, around Halloween every year, would take his class down into a dark cave, kill the lights, and tell them this story. I think there's some hinky stuff that goes on around there. I really do. I think that if you would become somebody that they felt threatened by, then you might get taken care of. There was a person that was in real estate that was buying property in that area also and somewhat resented the fact that these quote-unquote hippies were able to buy property and uh, made it as rough as possible on these people. I don't think Pete committed suicide. It didn't look like it was a bona fide suicide. That's one thing that I remember. There was an enormous amount of speculation about the whole thing for a long time. When I talked to his best friend, the first thing he said was like, Peter didn't kill that boy. Pete had been tormented prior to any of that happening. It seemed like about once a month, it seemed like close to the full moon, some of Pete's animals were being killed or tortured in some way. Autopsy did reveal that the femur in one of his legs was broken previous to his death. And I can remember the tree, and there's no way you climb that tree with a broken leg. I just don't put Pete Tower as being the, the killer in this. I, I don't see it. In the summer of 1975, in Pocahontas County, West Virginia, a teenage camp counselor, Walter Smith, went missing. His body was discovered a week later, under a pile of rocks, in a cave, on private property. West Virginia State Police interviewed the 30-year-old property owner, Peter Hower, at his homestead, but he went missing that same week. The next time anyone would see Peter, six months later, his remains were found hanging in a tree. Police concluded that Peter Hower murdered Walter Smith and then committed suicide. The case was closed. I'm Joe. I'm Angelo. And I'm Nicole. And you're listening to Buried, Not Forgotten. A Veritas Underground Media Production. West by God. Almost heaven. God's country. If you've never been to West Virginia, or if you don't live there, then forget what you heard. This is a real-life Appalachian murder mystery. Episode 1. The Cave. My neighbor Doug was the first person to share the story with us. He met Pete when he moved to Pocahontas County from Pennsylvania in the early 1970s. He come in there and, you know, just be neighborly. You come up to the house, hi, how you doing, introduce yourself and stuff and that stuff. Because when he moved in there and told me what was going on, he was a spieler. Okay. And that's what got me in the cave was him. He was compiling a book. Him and another, two other guys, I can't remember their name. But they come in every once in a while, every other weekend. They go to different caves, and then they go into the caves, and they kind of draw it on the paper while he was in the cave, how it was. And he wanted to know about all the caves in there. 
Hauer was actually one of the leading experts in saltpeter mining and had been compiling years' worth of research into a book on its history in Appalachia. He moved to West Virginia, where he had a saltpeter cave in his backyard. Golden Seal is a really cool magazine. It comes out quarterly, and it's actually published by the state of West Virginia through an Arts and Humanities Council. Golden Seal was founded in 1975 in order to preserve and to publicize the traditional West Virginia folk art that was being lost through time. And Pete Hauer was published in one of the first editions that came out. When the earliest West Virginia settlers homesteaded in the mountain wilderness, life depended on a variety of skills and arts that had been handed down for centuries. The 18th century people who struggled and worked their way up on the Greenbrier and Potomac River systems into the rugged highland regions encountered an isolation that made self-sufficiency a matter of survival. Perhaps the most vital element of that self-sufficiency was the chemical potassium nitrate, or saltpeter. Used in meat preservation, nitrate salt was most important as the major ingredient in gunpowder. The black powder was homemade by blending a small quantity of sulfur and charcoal with the saltpeter, which constituted up to 85% of the gunpowder. Peter was rediscovering and documenting saltpeter works, including the wooden artifacts, inscriptions, and evidence otherwise unknown to history. Many had already been vandalized or disturbed when they were found. By 1799, saltpeter from western Virginia had become a major item, not just for survival, but for trade and export as well. A travel book from that year noted the number of western caves and quantities of saltpeter and recorded that the gunpowder made with it in the backcountry forms a principal article of commerce and is sent to Philadelphia in exchange for European manufacturers. A backyard survival craft had grown into the state's first manufacturing or chemical industry. After the social unrest of the late 1960s, Peter was looking for a simpler life. The traditions in rural West Virginia were a good fit with his desire to raise chickens, goats, and a horse for farming. You know, he wanted to go back to living on the land, doing this and doing that. But, uh, hell, I went down there and showed him how to grow gardens and how to do this and work the ground for him with my tractors and disc and everything. And then he got into an organic garden with, uh, you know, he wouldn't use a tiller or anything like that. He'd just get old straw and bullshit. And hell, his garden always done that. And then he was a history teacher in school. And, uh, I mean, I don't know whether you're talking college or high school or what, but I was having trouble with my school, and he'd help me kind of toot me along in school. Doug was a teenager at the time. He said he got to know Peter really well in the four years he knew him. Peter would take all the kids from the area on outdoor adventures as he had done for the Harrisburg School District. Well, we got a lot of good friends. You know, he'd always, hell, in the summertime, we'd go down to sea swimming and fishing. And he would get the truck, and then everybody pile in the truck, and we'd go, like, little field trips in the summertime. Go to Beartown, or we'd go to, I don't know, went up to Seneca Forest, went up to Bedevil's Backbone, and up to Sink Highway, and looked around, and done this, and hiking and stuff. And, but then it was vice versa, too. He always told me that I learned, he learned a lot off me, too, about how to, you know, about ginseng or, or growing corn or something like that. He didn't know nothing about that stuff, you know, and he said he learned a lot off me about doing that. A hundred yards or so above where Peter's house used to be sits what locals refer to as the Saltpeter Cave. 
It's the reason Peter Howard purchased the property in the first place. It's not a deep cave, a couple hundred feet, and there's enough room to stand up comfortably. The cave had been a source of tension between Peter and the locals when he first moved to Pocahontas County. Well, the cave was on his property. You know, before he bought the property, these people uh, leave stuff in there. You know, they, like if they was sure. a 12-pack of beer, they wouldn't want their wife to see it. They'd stop there and just take it up to the cave and put it in the cave, you know. And he got, he got in disputes on that. Yeah. The local people did that for years, you know, and they want to hide stuff in the cave. And he said, no, you can't do that because I'm in the cave, you know, and stuff like that. And that's all that was about. The first press coverage of the case ran in the Charleston Daily Mail on June 9th, five days after Walter Smith went missing. So just to make this timeline clear, on Thursday, Walter fails to show up for work, and people are starting to get real worried. On Friday, the DNR, the game wardens, initiate a search, and they contact the police. And the police say, well, we have to wait 48 hours, and where are the parents? On Saturday morning, Walter Smith's parents arrive at Watoga State Park, and the police begin their search in earnest for a missing person. The scope of the search just continued to expand over the week. What started off as a few family members grew to invite friends and the whole hunt club running their four-wheelers up and down the hollow looking for evidence. The number of police, DNR officers, and eventually the National Guard being deployed failed to turn up much evidence. Doug lived across the road from Howard, and he remembers the day Walter Smith's body was discovered. He'd been taking care of Peter's chickens while he was out of town. I went down there to see what the hell was going on because there was a bunch of people down there. Because he had left before that and said, well, go down there and feed the chicken and whatever, you know. And uh, I come in and there was a whole bunch of people down there. And I said, well, hell, Pete must be back. I'm going there down and talk to him. And Mom said, no, I don't think there's something else going on. But they kind of wanted to talk to you anyway. I went in down there and I said, where's Pete? And... And he was a state police there, and he said, do you know Pete, do you know Mr. Howard? I said, yeah, man. I said, live right up the road there. I've been taking care of these chickens and stuff. Doug remembers police finding a note in Pete's typewriter. That's what made them think all this shit. And uh, they found a note in the typewriter saying that he had, the boy had come in there, and he'd confessed to the killing of the boy and buried him in the cave, and, and he was going to commit suicide, and you'll find his body, and you'll find my body in a nearby cave. They, I looked at the note, and I said, I'll tell you one damn thing. I said, Pete never typed that. And he said, what do you mean? How do you know he didn't type it? And I said, well, he's an expert typist. I said, you want to see shit that he typed? I just pulled out some papers. I said, well, look at this. I said, this is what Pete typed. This is how he typed. I said, he could be talking to you, and he type this at the same time. You know? I said, hell, he, the man was had like a PhD in his, I don't know where PhD, but he was way up there in history, you know, degrees. Doug was asked by police if he would take a look around the cave since he was familiar with it. The game warden, I think. He said, now, he said, I'll tell you, he said, Doug knows this cave probably any better than anybody. And they told me then that they asked me if I could go in the cave and see if there was anything different and tell them. We went in the cave, and I was going in there, and I just seen it. I said, well, it looks like there's been stuff changed around all over in here to me. Is there something in here that stands out to you is what they were looking at. Back next to the one wall, I told them, I said, well, yeah, that pile of rocks over there. I said, that don't look right over there, them rocks. So just to explain about Doug, 
At 16 years old, he was not an adult, but he looked like one. Uh, He had a beard, and when the police first asked him to look around the place, they did not know he was a child. And as soon as they found out that he wasn't 18, they sort of ushered him out of the area. And uh, because they told him, that kid ain't 16 years old. And the game went, what? You know, he was surprised because it was big. (laughs) Everything (laughs) had a beard and everything, you know. And they went in there and they got the boy out. Police and volunteer cave searchers would discover a pile of rocks under which the nude body of Walter Smith lie, head wrapped in plastic and blankets, shot three times with a small caliber weapon. According to the autopsy, his body had been sodomized. Walter's bicycle was never found, although rumors of where it ended up were well known within the community. Because they asked me if if I'd seen somebody on a bicycle like a week before that. And I said, well, no, I didn't see no way on bike. I don't know. It was supposed to be the kid. And they said that uh, Pete had left about the time he came up missing, is what it was. Doug thinks he remembers seeing Peter the week Walter Smith went missing. I think Pete came back myself because I think I seen him like the day before all this shit was going on. I went down to her on you know, my tractor mm-hmm. and... Uh, I swore that he was standing in the garden and waved at him, you know. Doug says the police came to the conclusion that Walter Smith had been in the area on his bicycle and stopped at Peter's house. Their scenario was that the kid came in there and it's some kind of either an altercation or some kind of thing or he knew Pete and he was trying to do something. I don't know what deal they thought there, but he killed the kid and put him in the cave. And then he left. That was their scenario. The next time anyone would see Pete Hauer was Thanksgiving Day six months later. That fall, he was squirrel hunting. He was out hunting. Larky wasn't. He was younger than me at the time. He wasn't, but like 12 and 14. Looked and he seen some clothes laying there and he looked around and kicked around and he was a bag of bones is all it was in the clothes. Just clothes and the bones in it. And he looked up and there was a rope and his skull was hanging in the rope. Listening to Buried Not Forgotten, a Veritas Underground Media production. Pocahontas County is unique compared to other parts of West Virginia. It is not coal country. The only other industry that developed was a timber boom in the 1920s. The geology of the whole region is underlied with karst, with a K. It's a type of limestone that water erodes easily and is filled with underground lakes, rivers, and caves. In some places, the creeks just disappear underground and their outlets are still being traced. We talked to a friend and neighbor of Peter Howard's, we'll call her Beth. She moved to Pocahontas County in the early 1970s. We were just part of a whole bunch of people that came here sort of homesteading, back to land, whatever. I met Pete almost right away because it's just down the road from, from the old house where we were living, and there was a bunch of cavers there one day. We stopped to chat, and so we ended up letting him take us into a cave and had an interesting day. Beth said they came across Pocahontas County through an almanac. Her and her friends had been looking for places with cheap land. 
I don't even know if they still come out with those, but they're, they were just full of all the statistics, worldwide statistics on everything you can name. And um, one thing was population. And there were only three or four states in the, in the United States that didn't add population between 1960 and 1970. The others were Arkansas or Mississippi and the Dakotas. But they, they sort of didn't, just didn't really lose population. They just kind of stayed the same. West Virginia lost 7% of its population between 1960 and 1970. So we figured, oh, maybe there'll be abandoned farms or something, you know. So we, we came to check it out. Beth remembers as they drove around Pocahontas County, they'd see chimneys left standing with no houses you know, left from like burnouts or something and lots of places. And we ended up just kind of um, camping or squatting or whatever in this old house where um, we call it Melby's Mansion. It was on Melvin Hill's place. And it seemed like that summer, it was like a serendipitous, you know, gathering of people from all over the place who were doing the same thing we were kind of looking for land and a place to be and it totally mystified the local people because we recognized each other right away we're instant friends and we're having potluck dinners and you know sharing information about places for sale and everything and the local people thought we all knew each other already, but some of us were from California, some of us were from Chicago, some of us were from New York, <laughs> and so um, it was it was interesting. Beth remembers harboring suspicions about the note police found as well. It's not really a suicide note, it's not really a last will and testament, but chances are it was typed during the week that Walter Smith disappeared. It's, it's very weird, Angelo. On the one hand, it's got, of course, you know, if he was a bad typist, I guess that could be it. But it's got, he was an English teacher, right? But it's got errors that you would think an English teacher would not make. But on the other hand, it's kind of, leave. it's a confession, and it's, it's leaving his belongings to his friends. And there were things in that, like he, he would give this thing to that friend because he knew, you know, things that only somebody who was a friend would know. So it's like, you know, it must have been written by Pete, but it didn't make sense that it was written by Pete. You know, it was a, kind of a weird thing. Joe, Nicole, and I have talked to dozens of Peter Howard's friends, and one common theme is that Peter simply couldn't have been capable of something like this. I don't think Pete committed suicide. I don't know that, but I don't think so. First of all, he said he would, they'd find his body in a cave, and the fact that his glasses weren't there and his leg had been broken and blah, 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 you know, just didn't, didn't look like it was a bona fide suicide. And that's one thing that I remember. Many of the key pieces of evidence in the case have never been recovered. The clothes Walter Smith had been wearing, the bicycle he'd been riding, the presumed murder weapon, Pete's glasses, or even a murder scene. That is amazing for anybody to ride a bicycle around here. <laughs> right. But it disappeared. I, as far as I know, it's never been found. And one of the rumors is that it was cemented up um, in, in the 
fireplace of uh, Boyd Thompson's house, the brick house up there. And just so you know, we're not glossing over the bicycle and the chimney thing. We're just going to get more into that in future episodes. Another buddy, Chuck, had been caving with Pete for years. He also remembers the bicycle. Chuck established a volunteer cave search and rescue organization in West Virginia and had been called in by the state police to search for Peter. The bicycle, as I understand it, was a mode of transportation that Walter Smith was using. Right. Um, since we never found Walter Smith's bicycle at Peter's or in any of the area around Peter's or in any of the caves in the area or any of the crevices in the area, I believe that the bicycle was either taken and removed from the area or it was stolen. Peter would often go to WVU to research Spelian history and Chuck was happy to host him. Their friendship had grown through caving trips and exchanging cave studies. Well, Peter was one of the national authorities on saltpeter mining. And that's what he was doing a lot of research at WVU uh, out of my house. I mean, he was, or my apartment. I mean, he was one of the cavers and all the cavers got along. And they probably all told you the same thing. Peter was a gentle giant that he would not intentionally hurt anybody. So we heard the same thing from just about every one of Peter's friends that we've talked to. None of us felt that Pete could have done it. Yeah. Um, if you notice the one statement in, in the will, he says, give my chickens to whoever you can, but they can't, don't allow them to eat them. Right. That, that gives you an idea of Peter. Right. So there was a lot of what I would say Peter's acquaintances and friends that couldn't believe that he had, had killed anybody. And we were concerned that uh, he had uh, been killed himself somewhere. Chuck was a close enough buddy of Peter's that he remembers when Peter had composed a will in 1971 after buying his farm. But Chuck says that he thought that the note police found the summer of 1975 seemed really suspicious. He said one thing that he noticed right away is that part of the letter is double-spaced and part of it is single-spaced, almost as if they were typed at two different times. The double-spaced things are consistent with what I remember him talking to me about when he was formulating this thing. Well, obviously, Peter was a skilled writer. Um, he, his English was usually good. And uh, a lot of these cross-ups, a lot of people have been bothered by that. Did you notice in, in Peter's writings that he was grammatically adequate, at least? Chuck says anyone could have altered the letter, and it's entirely possible. In later episodes, we'll talk about how police found Peter Howard's back door open and the kitchen light was on. Anyone could have walked into his house and typed the letter that week. But they, it looks like in the double space here, they just walked around the house and noted things. Cross-country skis. That stuff was down there. I remember you know, seeing quite a bit of this stuff. 
building and on the porch. So there's clearly something up with this note. You'll really just have to see the letter to see what Chuck is talking about. And we're going to share it with you on our website. We're actually going to be sharing just about everything we've come across with you. Interviews, newspaper clippings, crime scene photos, and a 140-page police and FBI report. Yeah, the, the double spacing just concerned me because these were not written at the same time. And if you notice, go, go to the last paragraph just above the signature. Mm-hmm. You notice that the typing is offset to the right about two letters? Yep. Yep. That wasn't typed at the same time. I, I can't see any reason that he would double space for some and single space for the other. It looks like things were pieced together here. The other thing that, that bothered me is down in the double spacing again down at the bottom of the double spacing. 22 rifle to be scrapped. And misspelled. What's that? I believe it's misspelled. Don't it say scraped? Yes. S-C-R-A-P-E-D. Now, there's a problem there. When I saw that rifle, it was standing by the door and was fully functional. It wasn't in a condition it needed to be scrapped. So I... And why would you... You know, put something you're going to scrap in the well. Sure. That, that yeah. is odd. Yeah. Chuck said he was surprised to learn that Pete had bought a pistol. He'd always known him to be more of a peace-loving type. I was not aware until this all happened that Peter even had a 25 caliber pistol. As far as I remember, all he had was a 22 rifle. Peter Howard bought this pistol because his livestock had been brutally attacked in a series of incidents. We're going to go into more detail on that in the next episode, but Peter had every reason to be scared. She was really worried that somebody would sneak over and kill him in the night. Chuck knew that Peter had taken to sleeping on the hillside above his house to catch anyone that might try and sneak up on his place at night. And, you know, he was fearful for, for months. So let's just recap what we learned in episode one. Keep in mind, the cave where Walter Smith's body was found was known by locals before Peter Howard bought the property, and it's a known fact that other people used to hide things in there. Pete had purchased the farm and cave to continue his historical research on gunpowder production and was an ardent conservationist. He disagreed with his neighbors about how the caves were used. Pete's house had been left open for days before the note was found, and we're told plenty of people were in and out of the house during that period. Very little case evidence was found, and no other suspects were considered. Pete always had thick eyeglasses, and people we've talked to said he always had them on. Supposedly, Pete climbed 30 feet up a tree to hang himself, even though he had a broken leg and his glasses were not found at the scene. Here's a timeline of the case. We'll have a visual timeline for you on our website. On Wednesday, June 4th, 1975, Walter Smith went for a bike ride. On Thursday, June 5th, he was supposed to go to work but was reported missing. On Friday, June 6th, the DNR game wardens at Watoga began searching along Walter's route. 
On Saturday, June 7th, Walter's parents arrived at Watoga, and the local police got involved. That week, Peter Hauer was questioned by the Smith family, the game wardens, and the police multiple times before he went missing. He was last seen on Sunday night. On Monday, neighbors noticed that Pete's back door was open and the lights were on. It stayed that way until Wednesday, June 11th, when police entered Peter Hauer's home and found a signed note on his typewriter. This note quickly led to the discovery of Walter's remains in the Saltpeter Cave on Peter's property. People in the area are still talking about and haunted by this case today. It's hard to believe that no one had ever investigated the rumors in 40 years. So after we first heard the story from neighbors, we wanted to know if the official report was different than the things we'd been hearing. One question led to two more, and after dozens of interviews, reviewing press coverage, Freedom of Information Act requests, and a trove of primary source documents, we knew there was something to this case. We want to share the story with you, so subscribe to get each new episode and visit buriednotforgotten.com for case visuals or to ask a question. Stay tuned for a new episode every Wednesday. In next week's episode of Buried Not Forgotten, it gets a lot weirder as we discuss the role of witchcraft, animal abuse, cults, and some problems Peter Hauer had been having with his neighbors. We'd like to thank our third partner on this project, Nicole. Unfortunately, you're not going to be hearing from her much, other than the audio in the interviews. She was a huge help in requesting documents and interviewing witnesses, and we would not be where we are if it had not been for her. We'd like to thank Dr. Henry Rausch for his invaluable help. He's the geology professor you heard about at the beginning. He met with us at WVU last year and spent the day sharing notes and photos and documents that he had collected over the years. You can find a sort of presentation of his regarding the Smith-Hauer murder on YouTube, and we'll link to the article he wrote about his investigation. We'd like to thank everyone that you heard from in Episode 1. Doug, Beth, and Chuck, and Peter Hauer's narration, where you heard from his journal about his saltpeter research. That was a buddy of ours, Luke. He lived just a few miles from where all this went down. The music on this episode is being played by Jake Crack. That's K-R-A-C-K. If there were a triple crown for old-time fiddle players, Jake would have it. He's won first prize at Clifftop, Galax, and the Vandalia Gathering. You're listening to a tune from the Revolutionary War period called Stack'em High, and Jake's going to play us out with You Piney Mountain. There we go.